Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Well, it is a question a lot of parents likely ask themselves. How much screen time is okay when it comes to young children? Well, some new research shows there is a direct connection between hours of screen time and child development. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dylan Brown, assistant professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Dylan Brown, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, what do we know as far as uh, there is a lot of research, but looking at uh, children at a very young age and the amount of screen time and what kind of an impact that can have? Well, uh, that, that's a complicated question. We know right now from the American and Canadian uh, academies uh, and of pediatrics that children are recommended to have no more than one hour of high quality screen time per day under the age of five. And unfortunately, statistics are showing that children are exceeding that, uh, sometimes uh, to a great degree, both in Canada and the United States. And how do we define quality screen time or high quality screen time? That is a challenge. And in the study we recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, we were looking at hours of screen time. the quality of screen time is still somewhat open to interpretation. And that is uh, a challenge for parents and also a challenge for scientists like me. And so and so we're looking at then hours. So that would be for, for this study and, and what we're finding here, That would, would that be any time spent looking at a phone or a tablet or a television? Exactly. A phone, tablet, uh, television, laptop, computer, uh, anything. So we, we looked at... Um, the, all the devices in the home, uh, and including in other kind of residual category to try and capture uh, what might not have been captured uh, in the other items and uh, turn that into a variable indicating the number of hours children were on each of those respective devices and added those up to create a total of screen time uh, per week. And what did you find then as far as the parents in this case, then they, they were tracking this, I would imagine, or making sure to keep track of how many hours were. And then, then what, what did you then test to see or could we tell if what impact the, the hours of screen time was having? So a lot of studies have already demonstrated that there's an association between amount of screen time and various aspects of child development. So, so that is not new. The reason that this study has become so popular is because we uh, took it a step further and followed uh, mothers and children from the ages, well, really from birth uh, up to the age of five. And we asked the same questions over time. So we asked how much screen time and how kids were doing at the age of two, at the age of three, and again at the age of five. And using that uh, longitudinal design, as it's called, we're able to get at the question of the chicken or the egg. So is it that the screen time is preceding variability in child developmental outcomes, or is it that uh, how kids are doing kind of inform whether or not they're using screens? Because that has been a criticism of the literature. Showing that two things are related doesn't mean that one causes the other. That's what everybody learns in the first year statistics class in university. So even though we aren't able to fully make a causal argument, we are able to say from this study that the screen time is coming first and then the impact on child development is coming later. Uh, that's interesting, too. And looking at, at how you tested that, uh, how, can you walk us through that if you can? Because I, I was uh, when I was reading about the study uh, that even for testing for motor skills, uh, how were you able to test and, and, and know that there was perhaps there was that connection? So uh, I guess two things uh, that, you, that you kind of touched on there. So one has to do with the measurement and assessment uh, uh, the, itself. 
So we used a widely, uh, you know, a widely employed tool called the Ages and Stages Questionnaire that uh, parents report or uh, often clinicians can report on how kids are doing in a number of different areas, fine motor, gross motor, uh, personal, social, um, communication, and, and language. Um, and parents are given uh, items that would say, say for a two-year-old, um, my child is able to um, use three or four word sentences, and then parents will say all the time, sometimes, or never. Uh, and then those types of responses are quantified numerically and summed to create a total score. Um, and so that provides us a quantitative element of how kids are doing at each time. And then in order to get at that direction, the chicken or the egg thing I was telling you about, uh, we use um, statistical modeling. Um, so uh, kind of a, we develop a mathematical model that uh, isolates those directional associations over time. And is there a way to tell, because parents might be listening to this and thinking, well, that that it's difficult to know, maybe is your child not using three or four word sentences or or maybe not good at soccer, but is good at something else or, or has developed better in some other areas because of the screen time? Yeah, so that's kind of uh, the question of, our, uh, or is all screen time created equal? And from this study, we don't know that. Uh, we've had to lump everything together. This is kind of viewed as a first pass on it, and there's a lot uh, that we don't know. And we also don't want the study to be kind of uh, sounding the alarm to parents and creating uh, any sense of guilt or blame. Parenting is already, I think, the hardest job in the world, and we don't want this study to be making it any harder. I think what we're hoping our findings start is a bit of a discussion so families can you know sit around the table at dinner and have a conversation about how are we using screens in this family and is that uh, within uh, what we would like to see and is that within these recommendations that are uh, coming out from different pediatric agencies across the world Um, all families are going to have media time in this day and age so it doesn't make any sense to be guilty about that what we want to do is uh, encourage parents to think about if that is getting in the way or starting to replace other things like um, physical activity, um, crafts, art, and other things that don't involve screen-mediated activities. Hmm. And I don't know if it went into this or, or if you can answer this, but did you look at if it's different if a child is solo uh, sitting in a room or sitting somewhere alone looking at a screen, it's just the child in the screen, or if it's more of a group activity, there are more people involved? We didn't look at uh, social screenplay, and based on our developmental theory, uh, say a, a caregiver and a child using a screen together in an interactive and collaborative fashion, or watching a TV program, or playing a video game together, and then discussing what's going on, is going to be totally different than passively watching uh, a YouTube video. So going forward, uh, we're very interested in looking at the social aspects of screens versus the solitary aspects of screens. There's a saying going around now that uh, screens should be enjoyed, not too much, and mostly with others. <laughs> Which uh, could, could go for a lot of things, really. Yes, yes, yes. 
like like um, dessert or junk food. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and, and that's one yeah. of the issues, isn't it, too, that, that, that the people might argue that we've always had screens, whether it was one TV in the household and maybe somebody watched it for several hours a day or then it was uh, TVs in bedrooms. And now it just seems like, we, well, we do have more uh, screens that are available to us. This, if we if we kind of vilify every every technology as it becomes more and more common. You know, and this has gone back to the printing press and romance novels at the turn of the 19th century. People thought that romance novels would, you know, ruin uh, the act of reading and people would be reading this kind of uh, non-literary material. Um, so there is that argument that uh, every new technology is going to destroy the generation. Um, and I don't think that subscribing to that argument is very helpful, though it is helpful to consider what's different this time. And what is different this time from, say, uh, our generation of television um, is the accessibility of the device and the power of the computing. Uh, The fact that this phone can be in your pocket and come out at the dinner table when you're at a restaurant. It can come out when a family uh, is at church or at a theater performance and children start to get fussy. And then the screen can become a way to regulate and modulate difficult emotions and and uh, unruly child behavior. So we don't want the phone to be replacing the frontal lobe as a way of helping regulate children. Children need to be developing those internal regulatory capacities. And one thing that scares me a little bit is that given uh, that these devices are with us 24 um, seven, the screen can begin to replace uh, important transactions that happen between parents and children, uh, and that is what to do when you're not feeling great. Hmm. What well, is uh, it's very interesting research, uh, Dylan. We'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, we've been talking a lot about screen time. We were talking uh, to Mike Agarbo uh, in the tech segment uh, about uh, new uh, and upcoming devices and such. We are now going to talk a bit more about misinformation. And this is an election year federally. uh, So a lot of people will be turning to online sources to find out about candidates, to find out what's happening in uh, various campaigns. What can we do, though, to make sure what we are reading is true and we are not falling victim? to misinformation campaigns. Well, Matthew Johnson is a director of education at Media Smarts. Media Smarts is a not-for-profit organization. It works to promote digital and media literacy. And Matthew joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. How much of a concern do you think is misinformation, especially when we're talking about things like political campaigns? Well, I think it's a big concern. Uh, it's been a concern for us, really, for a long time. This is uh, a field we've been working in at MediaSmarts, really, for decades. Um, but I think, obviously, uh, it's become a much bigger uh, issue in the general public's eyes because of its connection uh, to politics and elections. Um, I think what we've been seeing over the last couple of years, in a way, is the tip of the iceberg uh, becoming visible um, because there are huge issues uh, of misinformation, you know, ranging from everything from from health and science uh, to uh, even you know basic facts about history that uh, are being misrepresented. Um, it's it's built in many ways into the architecture of the platforms we use, with some of them, you know, really being designed unintentionally but still effectively to push us towards misinformation. 
Um, so really it is something that almost all of us need to be conscious of and, and we need to be developing better uh, information habits. And how do you even begin to do that? Well, the most important thing is to realize, in a way, how things have changed. Um, because a generation ago, we were in a world where most of us got our information from curated sources. We got news from the radio, from TV, from newspapers. We got other kinds of information from, from books that had been through a process um, of, of curating a verification and where really the, the business model of all of those outlets depended on them giving us accurate information in most cases. Um, but now our information sources are disaggregated. We don't exactly get news from a single newspaper or a single radio station. Most often we'll get a news story online, we'll get it through social media from maybe dozens of different sources. So we have to do that work ourselves. And what that means is that we have to be in the habit of uh, taking a little time to double-check. Now, that doesn't mean we have to double-check everything. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter if that video of this, you know, the, the water-skiing dog is real or not. But when it's something that can have a significant impact on people's health, on how people vote, on, you know, people's opinions about important things, we need to do a little bit of extra homework. And we particularly have to be careful to do homework before we share things, because that's that's the other big thing that's different is that now each of us is a part of the distribution network. Now we are broadcasters in a way that we weren't. And of course, when we share something, we lend it our credibility to our friends. So we have a really important role to play in making sure that misinformation doesn't spread. And is it getting more difficult, do you think, or like you mentioned, more traditional outlets, and there are still many uh, that mm. are reputable, and I would hope that we can trust what's on their websites, printed in their papers, uh, broadcast from them. Uh, is it getting, are those lines, though, do you think, becoming blurred in what people are comfortable with what they can trust at face value and something that might maybe needs a double check or needs a, to a bit of research to find out to make sure that it's true? Yeah, I, I think in most cases we're going to feel that if something's important, it needs at least sort of two different tests. Um, because, I mean, first of all, you want to see is the source you're getting it from generally considered to be a reliable source. And that means tracking it to the original source, because so much of what we get, first of all, we get it, as I say, through social media, but also things get aggregated, things get, uh, you know, we see uh, a whole bunch of online outlets where their whole business is, is lightly rewriting an article from some other outlet that actually originated it. So we do have to figure out where a story came from originally, um, and then we need sometimes to do a little bit of research um, because, of course, we also are exposed to uh, news from all around the world today in a way that uh, was impossible a generation ago. And so it's, you know, you may not recognize uh, if you see something from, uh, you know, from The Guardian in the UK. You may, it may take a little bit of research. It may take five seconds of Googling or a quick search on Wikipedia to say, well, what do people say about The Guardian? Is that a reliable source? Is it not a reliable source? And so we need to be in that habit. We need, in a sense, to admit uh, to ourselves, uh, that we can't always trust our instincts, that we don't necessarily know, and that it's okay to take a look and say, well, what is this out? What do other people say about this outlet? 
And that's the real value of a source like Wikipedia, which is that it's, uh, it aggregates people's uh, information. It aggregates people's opinions, so you can be pretty sure that what you're seeing there in most cases is reflective of what most people feel. And that's not necessarily always a great thing when it's something where there's something that's objectively true, like science. Um, but in something like the judgment about the reliability of a source, it's probably going to be pretty useful. And the other thing you want to do, of course, because news sources do sometimes make mistakes, especially as they're you know, being forced more and more to publish quickly to try to... Uh, to get a lot more content out there and to, to beat other outlets, you want to see if anyone else is covering this, especially if it's a news story. Um, and sometimes you may have to wait. If you see a really big news story and uh, only one outlet is covering it, even if it is a really reliable news story, you may say, you know, I'm not going to share this until I can see that other people have confirmed it. Even if it's, uh, I find that interesting, even if it is a reputable uh, news agency, because you might just think, too, that they, they got a scoop, they they got mm. a tip, or they were the first ones with it, to, and, not, and that doesn't make it uh, wrong, it's just they, they were the first ones out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a question of, uh, for us, as news consumers, and as they say, of increasingly news rebroadcasters, of our responsibility. Because um, there isn't the same reason for us to get things out as, as soon as possible. Um, we can afford, as consumers of news, to wait before we share things. So if it were something from the New York Times, they absolutely do break scoops all the time. Um, but just like every news outlet, they do make mistakes sometimes, particularly uh, if it's not necessarily the official Times channel, but if it's a, a reporter on their Twitter feed or something like that. Um, it sometimes makes more sense. I mean, there was an example just last week. It wasn't the New York Times, but... Uh, there was, uh, I forget who it was, but it was a very reliable news outlet that was reporting that all of the uh, all of the planes at LaGuardia Airport in New York had been grounded because of the U.S. government shutdown. Um, and it turned out that that wasn't true. They had kind of misinterpreted what had happened. Um, there was a, what was called a ground delay. But one news outlet, a generally reliable news outlet, said that they had all been grounded. Um, and this spread, as one might expect. A lot of people shared that. And it turned out if you had waited half an hour or even probably 10 minutes, you would have seen, no, that wasn't actually the case. Uh, what about the issue of, of sponsored content? Because there's more and more of that and news agencies that uh, are advertising kind of seeps into the news coverage. Sometimes it's identified as sponsored content. Sometimes it's not. Yeah, well, that's certainly something that we spend a lot of effort to teach young people especially, is to help them recognize the difference between uh, content and advertising online. And certainly it's a blurred one. A lot of sites you have to look carefully to see the sponsored tag. We know that in um, in social networks, uh, particularly places like Instagram, uh, even though there are rules about indicating when something is sponsored, sometimes it's not really clear or sometimes people don't follow those rules. Uh, and so you do have to be, to a certain extent, a little bit of a detective. Um, and again, it goes back to the idea of a business model. And that's why, uh, you know, since the 1990s, we've been teaching based on key concepts of media literacy. And one of the key concepts of media literacy is the idea that all media have commercial implications. Most media exist to make money. And 
even when it doesn't, it costs money to make them. Um, and so you do have to be asking about something. Well, how do they make more money? Do they make more money by uh, selling a reputation for accuracy? Um, or are they making more money by selling uh, sponsored content? Um, and that's one of the ways that we identify how reliable a source is likely to be. And that can vary on different issues. Uh, definitely. Um, there there have been attempts made uh, in other countries, uh, laws even against misinformation or allowing uh, things to be reviewed. They can be removed uh, from the Internet uh, from various sources. Uh, some would go on the other side of that saying that it, it infringes on free speech, that people should be allowed to uh, give their opinion or give their, their, their idea, even if it's not technically correct. What do you say to this idea that if we go too far in that direction, it can actually uh, infringe on free speech? Well, that's certainly a risk. Um, I mean, we're, a, we're an education organization, so, you know, I can't really speak too much about uh, possible legislation. Um, but, you know, I can say that uh, I, I think in general governments are, uh, particularly governments in places like Canada, where free expression is guaranteed uh, by law and in the Constitution, governments are understandably reluctant um, to put limits on speech beyond uh, what's absolutely necessary. Um, and you know, the lines have been drawn differently in different places, so uh, certainly we've drawn the line a little bit differently than in the United States when it comes to things like hate speech. But still, I think most governments are quite reluctant. And I think, um, I think we're likely to have better results um, rather than using sort of a, a heavy hammer of law, which I think is likely to only be used in last resort anyway, to have uh, an educated populace that is going to be uh, savvy about reading news and, uh, and careful particularly about sharing it. All right. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting take on that and very good advice. Uh, Matthew, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you. This morning, we're going to talk about a move being done in New Westminster and what kind of an impact this could have on rental stock in the future. And joining me uh, to uh, talk about this is Daniel Fontaine. He is a contributor to New West Council Watch, also a civic affairs columnist with the Orca Online. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Good morning. I should also say, now you ran for council. You did not get a seat on council. And uh, you also have a, another connection to this story as far as the properties in question. That's correct. Yeah, I do own two uh, stratified units in downtown uh, New Westminster. All right. So what has New Westminster Council done? Because the headlines that I've been seeing on this in that uh, they become the first B.C. city uh, to pass a bylaw that aims to stop rent evictions. But what does this bylaw actually do? So what this bylaw does, uh, first of all, to provide a bit of uh, historical context, is uh, the B.C. government introduced Bill 23, which allowed cities some additional powers when it comes to uh, what they call creating rental zoning, essentially. So they can zone particular neighbourhoods or or even um, spot zone particular buildings so that they are protected and that they don't be converted over, for example, into kind of stratified into condo units, which I think most people, when that legislation was introduced, supported even organizations like the urban development institute and others said they liked the general thrust of where the legislation was going uh nobody i believe thought it was going to be used in the way that it was in new westminster this week and what happened was that there were six properties in the city of new westminster that were 
stratified back uh, in the 70s. So they were essentially condo units, but they were being used as rental properties. So they were effectively um, rental buildings, but on title and BC assessment was assessing them and taxing them like they were they were condos. And the city of New Westminster came in with a very short uh, notice, very little uh, time, and uh, basically passed a bylaw which effectively removed that stratification and, and ensured that those buildings were going to remain rental now uh, permanently due to the bylaw. So obviously the property owners will, will see a, a downzoning in their property, likely a loss of value. And we heard uh, loud and clear this week from a number of uh, property owners and developers that said that this has sent a real chill around the potential for new investment in rental housing in New Westminster. But this is the test case, Jill. This is where it starts. I suspect that this will, this type of bylaw, you're going to see it in Burnaby and Vancouver and other metro cities now that, now that New Westminster has passed it. And so these units, that these stratified units then, were they owned by one person that, and they've been rented out? Or how, yeah. how have they been operating? Yeah, they were. So, for example, there's um, a place called uh, Gordy House, I think, or Gordy Place that's here. And it's uh, owned by a family. And uh, there were a number of units uh, in that uh, particular property. Uh, the, the, the property was purchased through the sale of a business uh, a number of years ago. And uh, the family uh, saw that as part of their retirement income. It was part of their investment into the future. So, um, yes, it's not like the units were individually um, owned by separate owners. They were owned by a single owner. And that's what made it unique. And that's what essentially allowed the city to come in and, and do that. But as was argued this week, there's actually nothing preventing a city from from zoning individual stratified units as well. Or if there's a, a building, uh, you, for example, where, where my building is, where we own a, a condo downtown, there are a number of units in that building that are rented and have been rented for a long time, for a couple decades. There's actually nothing stopping the city from going in and and essentially spot zoning those particular units and saying that they will no longer effectively be stratified but will be put into the rental pool permanently. So as you can appreciate, while I think people generally support the push for uh, to protect and to enhance rental housing, there's also the whole issue of property rights as well, which is what uh, triggered some concern. Uh, definitely. So as it stands then, if somebody, if that was to happen, uh, so an owner of a property that's in a part of a stratified building, uh, if the zoning changes or has or uh, what, what's happened with these buildings, then so what happens then if the family uh, decides that they want to sell? So they can now sell the building, but the building that they're selling now is no longer, strat- essentially no longer considered stratif- uh, stratified unit. So I contacted BC Assessment this week and I did ask them, I said, will you be looking at these, this building now that this new bylaw is in place? Will you look at it differently? Will it no longer be seen as being a stratified unit? And they, they confirmed that was the case. So my suspicion is next year when the assessments uh, are made on July 1st, that uh, BC Assessment will lower that property value. So essentially the, that, that family that owns that particular building, and there was only six spots in the city, but that particular family will see uh, a loss in their actual uh, investment property. And what's interesting is the city didn't offer any compensation. Uh, for example, when they expropriate property, they typically will provide you with compensation for that. They rushed the, the bylaw in. They rammed it in within a couple of weeks. So it's a very little opportunity. The, the bylaw actually was posted on the city's website, I believe, late on a Friday. The public hearing was on a, on a Monday there was a lot happening in the media cycle. It was really hard to get any attention on it. And before you knew it, these uh, six property owners had their uh, their rights stripped away. And uh, 
And uh, like I said, I'm anticipating this is going to happen in other cities around the region. And it does seem like, like you said, nobody is suggesting that uh, that they want to see rental housing go away. I, I think quite mm-hmm. the opposite. People would, would agree that there is a need for more of it. Uh, but in this case, I mean, it does seem pretty heavy handed that a council would do that and somebody's investment and in something that was that was was for for lack of it was condominiums it was it was condos that they could have sold and now they're almost it's like they're being they're forced you must be a landlord uh, in this particular case uh, from now on yeah and i wrote uh, as you indicated at newwestcouncilwatch.ca i did write a column and i wrote about some of the alternatives that they could have done so rather than ramming this in within two weeks with absolutely zero consultation to the owners there are other um, uh, things that government could have done, the city could have done, that didn't require legislation. They could have, uh, as the owner said, sat down with those owners and said, look, is there an opportunity to perhaps put a covenant on that property to ensure that it remains a, a rental property uh, for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, which wouldn't have required it to be downzoned and wouldn't have required it to be de- devalued? Um, are there other opportunities uh, in the city, for example, um, like uh, like myself, I own a stratified unit uh, in, in downtown New West. What if I want to voluntarily put that into that program? Why doesn't the city come in and say, look, if you want to put a covenant on your property, you're going to rent it out for the next 10 or 20 years. We'll put that into this, um, into this new bylaw and you'll get a break on your property taxes. That's absolutely within the, the power of the city to do. But Jill, I, I suspect the reason they're not doing that is because they have to then compensate the property owners, if they go down that road, and by doing what they did this week, not only did they send a chill into future development of rental uh, in both New West and throughout the region, but it means that they don't have to compensate the owners. And that's, I suspect this is going to go to court. I suspect that uh, this will be heard out in, in, in probably in BC Supreme Court. And the city may have a, a real challenge in being able to, uh, to win this case. Well, and the uh, Urban uh, Urban Design Institute has commented on this as well, like you said. And, and I guess one of the questions, and you've touched on this, is if you're a developer and you want to build a condominium tower, uh, you're now fearful that you might build that and it could be downzoned. That's correct. And, and that was what uh, was uh, indicated by the UDI, the Urban Development Institute, as well as the owners, that you know, if you're trying to find ways of increasing rental housing and especially affordable rental housing, this type of, of, of action that New West Council took this week without any consultation, it just it ends up sending people into one camp or another and it ends up going into court. Uh, you're not working with the development community to come up with ideas on being able to develop affordable housing and it really sends a chill into the community. And I think I, I hear the frustration of the city councillors. They feel like they don't have any power or anything uh, within their toolbox to protect rental housing. Uh, but this legislation was meant to, to do that for uh, housing that was already rental, essentially was, was uh, classified as rental. That was my understanding from the debate in the legislature when, when Minister Robinson introduced the, the legislation. It was not intended to take stratified properties and to essentially convert them into rental. That was... Not the intent, but that's in fact what happened this week. Well, uh, as you said, this case could very likely uh, end up in court. So we'll be watching to see what happens next uh, with this. Uh, Daniel, thanks so much for uh, joining us to talk about this this morning. We'll leave it there, but thank you. 
Thanks for having me on. It is a divisive issue in White Rock. And now after that storm that knocked out a part of the pier and has many business owners there a little worried about the number of people that will be walking by or coming to the area. The idea, once again, to allow dogs on the promenade in White Rock is being floated. And joining me to talk about this is Michael Armstrong. He first pitched the idea to council. He ran unsuccessfully for council on a pro-dogs platform. And Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Where are we now as far as the discussion on whether or not dogs should be allowed on the promenade? Well, the uh, council has uh, uh, read the revised bylaw to allow dogs in the off-season, and uh, they've done the first, second, and third readings, and the final reading will hopefully be at the next council meeting in nine days. All right, and what is your motivation as far as being passionate about this and trying to bring forward change to allow dogs in that area? Well, my background is I have about 30 years in hospitality, food, and tourism industry, and uh, we moved here about 21 years ago, and I've been uh, just, uh, I'm not happy about uh, every year seeing so many businesses on Marine Drive go out of business, and it's because uh, you cannot uh, make a successful business by only having uh, uh, two months of the year of uh, people, and then the rest of the year, uh, nobody showing up. So um, it just didn't make sense to... uh, effectively prevent about half your population from coming down and enjoying the uh, the uh, biggest and closest park to everybody. Uh, do you think it would make a big difference then if, if people with dogs were allowed on the promenade and on the beach? Well, I think it'll make a difference for sure. It's, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's going to make every business uh, a success, but uh, uh, right now, um, you know, Vancouver says they 36% of households have dogs and uh, the U.S., uh, Humane Society did a survey last year saying 48.5% do. And uh, um, so really, uh, White Rock has uh, 34% seniors and Vancouver has 16%. And seniors in single-family households have a higher proportion of dog ownership. So we're definitely talking 40 to 50% of the population who won't go down there. Right now, many people drive their dogs to Surrey and walk around uh, Crescent Beach or they go to Fort Langley or the Seawall or Richmond, Steveston, everywhere else in BC welcomes them. And I'm not sure if people know this, but the city doesn't own the Promenade Park. It's leased from the uh, railway. Every year we pay about 450000 in lease plus another few hundred thousand in uh, maintenance. And uh, we're actually in the process of finishing a $6 million capital upgrade on that property for the uh, bathrooms and uh, Memorial Park. So half of the residents are paying, will be paying about $9 million in the next, uh, well, this election term, and will not be able to use it. Uh, so what do you say to, to those who are opposed to it? And uh, there is uh, the Facebook page, uh, No Dogs on Promenade. Uh, clearly, uh, people have taken it upon themselves to document where they've seen dogs in the area. Uh, they claim that it's too crowded to have dogs. Some people are fearful of dogs. And they also make the argument that dogs on the beach could be detrimental uh, to some of the other wildlife. What do you say to their concerns? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, everybody's not going to be happy, but what, what uh, we're saying is we want to share it. And we, our proposal is that the people who don't like them get the four nicest summer months of the year, and those of us with them that walk our dogs, rain or shine or cold, every day uh, can use it the rest of the year. So, so it, it seems like a, a fair proposal. And uh, as far as the, um, uh, the environmental impact, uh, the fact is the riparian area 
riparian area regulations of the first 98.4 feet of the uh, of the shoreline and if we're really concerned about the environment let's pull out the entire promenade and let it return to its natural state and a few dog poop residue um uh, our, our position is that with dog bag dispensers installed and uh, it's the flattest, well lightest park in town, it's also the widest sidewalk in town, um, that uh, there'll be actually uh, less poop around town. And uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm a dog owner. I'm in favor of taking my dog everywhere. And I was actually, it was a few years ago, I didn't realize that the promenade was not dog friendly. I happened to be sitting at one of the tables and my dog was sitting on the grass and a bylaw officer came up and said, uh-uh, get out of here. You can't, you can't be here with your dog. Uh, is it, do you think it's a case though of perhaps a few bad owners, people that, and we see this in other places where dogs are allowed, be it on leash. Uh, everybody knows you're supposed to keep your dog under control. Is it a few owners that already are going against the rules that that perhaps are ruining it for everyone well that's i think the case with any any problem in society there's always a few percent that don't like to follow the rules uh but uh, we think that uh, because it is the the best uh, uh lighted and and the fact is white rock is only eight blocks wide so every single resident lives within eight blocks of this park that's the entire uh, shoreline so uh we think more people down there in well-lighted area, there's less likely the, those people will want to uh, uh, not pick up. They'll just keep walking around the rest of town and not picking up. So uh, we're, we're hoping that uh, uh, those of us with dogs uh, will be very uh, diligent in, in having those who forget to pick up to uh, pick up. We also pick up stray poops ourselves, so uh, we want to we keep it clean. We want this to happen. And uh, the people that are against us, they, they sometimes seem surprised that we also don't like stepping in it. So, <laughs> uh, Very, very true. Um, the proposal, the idea as it stands, though, and the pier obviously is out of commission right now. That's a whole other story on why it's uh, going to be costing so much money to replace that. Uh, the proposal, though, is not to have dogs on the pier, is it? Yeah, no, no, not on the pier. And... Uh, and as well, uh, uh, just the eight months a year to uh, as a trial. So uh, the, the plan is to actually track the dog license revenue. Right now, only uh, 6%, I'm told, of uh, dog owners get their dogs licensed. Well, the, the problem is if you don't see a value in getting something, you're not going to get it. So we're going to heavily promote uh, all the dog owners to get dog licenses. That should add up to well more than $100,000 for assisting the Dog bag dispensers and bags are provided by uh, Canine Community Clean for for no charge, and um, and uh, we'll have some uh, some uh, evidence as far as how the businesses are doing, and even parking revenue will probably go up. We have a new uh, ten or twelve million dollar parkade about to open, and uh, the parking occupancy for the year of 2017 was only 21 percent. Uh, on average for the full year. And even in the summer months, we only went up to 44% occupancy. So so we need to get people down there. And the Business Improvement Association is completely in favor of this and has been for the eight years we've been trying to get this done. Well, you've almost, I think, answered my next question. Have you talked to business owners and, and found out what, what they're saying about this idea? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the BIA just did a survey two weeks ago and uh, the initial responses are overwhelmingly in favor. Uh, uh, they want people down there, and, and you know we're not saying 100% of dog owners are going to buy stuff, but uh, like I said, a lot of people go to Fort Langley or Surrey and walk their dog and have coffee and a lunch and then go home. Uh, the fact is uh, dog owners are generally have more disposable income to spend on their, their animals. 
And, and and you touched on this as well. So right now, are there off-leash areas in White Rock or places where people can go? Uh, well, there's one off-leash area. We were successful in getting the city to add one about seven years ago. But unfortunately, it's, uh, it's extremely small and it's under trees in Centennial Park, which is on the uh, far west side of town. So it's, uh, it's a mud pit most of the year. Um, but there is one, so we're happy about that. But uh, we definitely need more. Uh, we have the fewest uh, uh, dog off-leash areas in, uh, in uh, I'm pretty sure, all of B.C. Um, compared to Vancouver, we would need uh, 6.2 acres of off-leash park, and, and we have about half an acre. All right. Well, we will be watching to see uh, what happens uh, with this next and uh, how many people show up and, and what council does. Um, are you expecting, uh, you may have answered this already, are you expecting a decision after people have their say? Uh, well, people have done surveys, they've had their say, and, and, and you know, we're all, we're all tired of it. We've been going for eight years at least, and, uh, and uh, I think uh, the best way to, for people to have their say is to get this trial period going, and, and we can have a year of feedback and, and measuring and uh, see how it is. All right, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining us and for talking about this this morning. Okay, well, thank you, and people can go to Dogs in White Rock on Facebook and like us.